Hi folks, this is Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is July 26, 2013, and this is episode 1173 of the Survival Podcast, 1173. And uh, today it's Friday, 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 and that means it's time for your calls to the Think Line, the number you call. It's 866-65-THINK. Again, 866-65-THINK. You call that number, and if you, if you don't have a phone with letters on it, I don't know who has that anymore today, but some people have asked. So 866-658-4465, 866-658-4465. You will not get me. You will not hear, hi, this is Jack. You're on the air. Some people seem to expect that. It's not going to happen. show is pre-recorded. You'll get a voice message telling you to leave your message, your comment, your point for the show. And when you do that, try to be, try to do it this way. Make your point or ask your question immediately. Don't give me any details. Don't qualify it with anything. Just make your point or ask your question and then put all the detail you want to after you do that. I promise you your call will go better and the odds that you'll get your call on the air just went up about 1000% if you'll do that. With that said, uh, I do have a bunch of great calls for you today and remember we do have an expert counsel. They're made up of some folks. I want to give you their names right now and what they do. Frank Sharp Jr. of Fortress Defense Consultants on Weapons and Security. Joe Nobody from uh, Holding Your Ground on Bug Out and Societal Breakdown. Darby Simpson on Livestock and Farm Management and Homestead Consulting. Ben Falk of Home Systems Design on Permaculture, specializing in northeastern climates. Paul Wheaton of Permies.com on Permaculture, specializing in northwestern climates. Tim Glantz of Old Grouch's Military Surplus, specializing in bug out vehicles, military surplus, and communications. Stephen Harris of Solar1234 and about 5 million other websites on all things energy. And Chef Keith Snow of Harvest Eating on Cooking. If you have a question for any of those, the way you do that is you make your call. You say, hi, Jack. This is a call for expert council member. Say their name. And I would like to ask them, say your question. Then followed by the details. Just like you were doing a call for me, immediately send me an email and say, I just called in a question for fill in the blank. From phone number XYZPDQ, and please note that. And that'll make it more likely that I'll pull that call out of the queue faster and get it over to them for feedback. I sent out a ton of stuff today to Paul, to Steve, to Tim, uh, and to Keith. So there'll be a lot of feedback from the, the expert council next week. This week, all you got is me. There's a couple that could have been done by the council this week that I decided to take on for you myself. And uh, anyway, just wanted to remind you guys of that. Before we get into your calls, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsor. Sponsor of the day number one today, ready-made resources. There's not much more you can ask for from a company than for their name to be what they do and then have them do it time and time consistently over and over again. Ready-made resources is just that. All the resources you need, ready-made, ready-to-go, point-click buy for your preps, and they'll be shipped to you with lightning-fast service, shipping, and great pricing. ReadyMadeResources.com is the website you need to go to for that. And I'll tell you what, those guys have been around and supporting our show for a very long time, so they have certainly earned a crack at your business. The next time you're thinking about buying anything for prepping, from tactical to practical to guns to gardening and anything in between, please check out Ready-Made Resources before you make your final purchase decision. Next up today, BulkAmmo.com. Hey, if you want ammo, 
It's still hard to come by, but a lot of stuff that's hard to find in the stores is now available at BulkAmmo.com. The prices have still not come down to where they were before this whole mayhem started, but it is there and it is available, and it's some of the best pricing and best availability that you'll find. And if you order something from BulkAmmo.com, you will be, you will literally, your neck will literally snap at how quick it ends up on your front doorstep or at wherever you receive your mail. They are just absolutely lightning fast with shipping and service. First time you order from them, you do have to provide a copy of identification because you're buying ammunition. Once that's done and you're in their system, man, it is just like lightning. Even the first time is pretty fast. If you doubt me, go stock up on the other precious metal today at BulkAmmo.com and you'll find out what, how, what I'm talking about. And for those that have never heard the term before, the other precious metal, that would be copper jacketed lead. Next up, do want to remind you guys about the Walking to Freedom Forum. I've gotten quite a few uh, volunteers for uh, moderators there that should be keeping the board uh, pretty clean. Do have a lot of states without moderators yet, though. So if you are in a state and you uh, will be willing to just keep a watch of your board and your board only, uh, let me know. Send me your forum handle name. Uh, send me what you want to do. If you want to be a global moderator of the whole thing, don't say, well, I can do this or I can do that and I've lived in this state. And I would like to be a moderator for fill in the blank. My forum name is fill in the blank. And I'll probably just send you an email back a little bit later that'll say, done. You have the power. Use it wisely or it will be taken away from you. <laughs> All right. But walkingtofreedom.com is a great forum. It's, uh, there's a lot of people emailing me saying they've been inspired by it. They are looking to find a better place to live. So we are having people walk to freedom throughout the country. And my friends in New Hampshire, who when I did this, thought I was not doing you a solid, who said, this will dilute what we're doing with the Free State Project. It has not. I cannot tell you how many people have emailed me and said they've set their sights on New Hampshire, but they did it because they were first open to the entire concept of walking to freedom in the first place. As I told you, I was doing you guys a solid. I know some of you were concerned about that, but... It's not happening. I just had a guy email me yesterday. I'm moving from Georgia to New Hampshire. Georgia! Not even on the naughty list. Georgia to New Hampshire inspired uh, by the uh, Walking to Freedom Forum. Had another guy moving up the East Coast as well. Concerned with driving through places like Maryland and Pennsylvania and New Jersey. Pennsylvania's not so bad, by the way. But New Jersey and Massachusetts with his guns when he moves to New Hampshire. So I told you guys it would actually create more movers for the Free State Project And it has. I also told that guy to get in touch with the Free State Project up there and say, well, what do I do about this? Uh, check with every state, see what their laws were about how the guns had to be transported and, you know, how does it affect you if you stay at a hotel and all kinds of crap like that. But in the end, hey, you got a support group there, uh, and I'm sure you guys can help them out. That is a great question, though. Let's, uh, let's take a segue in the middle of the housekeeping section today. Um, how do you handle driving through states like Massachusetts and New Jersey when you are moving to a state like New Hampshire or Maine, and you have all of your firearms. I know that technically in New Jersey, I know that technically in New Jersey, if you're moving and it's in a locked case and unloaded, it should not matter. But I also know somebody went to jail and almost went to prison who was doing just that because their parents made a phone call that they were concerned about him, and Governor Christie Uh, basically issued a full pardon and, and threw out the judge's conviction. The man was actually convicted. It wasn't as cut and dry as driving straight through the state, but I, there are some pitfalls there. So if anybody has suggestions of how to make sure you're 100% safe moving from one state to another and transporting your firearms through those states, I'd love to hear from you. 
Anyway, let's get into today's show. I'm not going to do any more housekeeping today. I think I went long enough, and I got a ton of questions. These shows usually go really long, so let's, with that, take your first call. Hey, Jack. This is Oil Lady on the forum, and I just wanted to make a comment on the teacup generation. Um, I work in medicine, and um, there is a general common sense that I think I have to this day as far as recognizing certain aspects of when a cut is a minor cut, when it's starting to get infected, when it really gets infected. Even before I had my medical training, I just had a sense about it. And um, right now, I'm seeing things where people, children, teenagers don't understand cuts. And these are not children from deprived backgrounds. These are children from educated households. They don't get it. Their sister has a cut and they don't get it. They don't know what to do. And what I'm finding is Parents are trying to prevent their children from any kind of little boo-boos happening to them. And then by the time they are teenagers or young adults, they don't even understand the most basics of first aid. They don't know how to recognize when a cut is healing properly, when it's starting to go south. And, you know, I have memories of when I was a five- or six-year-old kid, I had a bandit on my finger. I would play with the bandit. I'd peel it off. I'd look at the cut. I would see it progress. Sometimes I would do something stupid like super tighten the Band-Aid around my thumb literally to make my thumb turn purple because I thought it was funny. But this is a sense of your own biology that you learn as a child and then you have a a sensicalness that you come to as an adult. And I can recognize things in my health care practices, not practices, my, my health care duties when I am engaged with my patients. Uh, a lot of it's from my formal training, but some of it's from when I was a child. And depriving a child of a basic cut, depriving them of the opportunity to wear a Band-Aid for a week and even play with the Band-Aid, um, that, that's just wrong. <laughs> so I just wanted to make that comment. Thanks so much, Jack. Hey, Jack, this is Oil Lady again calling back. I just called you about five minutes ago. I want to add one more comment. Um, in addition to simply the intellectual knowledge of the biology of cuts and of healing, there's also the aspect of compassion because when you get hurt as a kid, you get hurt and you don't like it and the ability to learn compassion, whereas you don't want to get hurt, but the ability to learn or come to uh, be of the disposition that you don't want others to get hurt also is an important thing to get ingrained into a child. And if a child never gets hurt, how can they reach a point of not wanting others to get hurt? If they don't know what pain is, how can they take it upon themselves to say, I don't want others to have that pain as well? So, as I said, I work in the healthcare profession and being a healer is means you are someone who understands what pain is. And denying certain types of pain, I think, denies the ability to learn compassion. I should say, denying certain types of pain from our children denies of them the ability to learn compassion. So uh, somebody take that to the current discussion table about bullies, please. Thanks a lot, Jack. Well, that's a very insightful call, and it's not something generally I think people would think of as a modern survival topic, but but I, I believe very much that... We have a chronic problem right now with the way children are being raised. And, I mean, how far away are we from children running around in completely wrapped up foam suits? And, you know, this is something that as I've examined this phenomenon of parents 
treating children like teacups. And again, I think the problem is not that we have parents raising teacups. I think we have teacups raising china plates at this point. Like the, 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 this generation that's raising our current generation, they're already teacups. They're already freaking teacups. I saw teacups working on my construction jobs almost 20 years ago. So these might be teacups of teacups of teacups at this point. Uh, and when I say china plates, what I'm talking about is you go into your cabinet and you get out a cup for coffee or tea, your regular everyday stuff, right? And, and it, you try to be careful with that. You don't drop it on the floor or anything or slam it on the counter. But if it gets a nick in it, it's not that big a deal. It's everyday stuff. But then you have the good china in the china cabinet, and when you pull that out, you're extra special careful with it. That's, that's, it's worse than teacups. It's china plates that we're, we're raising today. And I never really thought about the fact that if you, if you protect children to the point where they don't get scratched up and bruised and the stuff that we always did. I mean, when I was a kid running around in the swamps of Florida and eventually in the mountains of Pennsylvania, especially during, let's say, the summer, spring, and fall, there was never a time I, you couldn't find a mark or a scratch or a bruise on me. I mean, never. It was impossible. And right now, you know, I have scratches and nicks from gardening and from just doing stuff. I've got a scar from a freaking chicken, right? And, I mean, I'm not suggesting that a little girl should be able to go out and skin her knee and then just get up and walk away and not, you know, shed a tear and get an owie kiss or whatever by it. But I'm saying they should at least be have the opportunity to, yeah, skin their knee. I mean, I'm not saying that you should trip your kid so she skins her knee, but I'm saying if you let kids play... They'll get little owies and, and, and boo-boos and stuff like that. And let me tell you how bad it is. My own family recently, we had our, our grandnieces here. They can't walk in the grass in flip-flops if it hasn't been mowed because it's itchy. Now, I know they're little girls, but really? Really? And everything that gets near them, ah! and again, I know they're little girls, but really? You know what? It's like, oh, that's the, well, move it. You know, there's a wasp. Ah! We'll walk away from it. You know, don't just stand there and wait for me to fix it for you. And I think it's good that they come here because, well, Uncle Jack don't raise no china place nor no teacups. You know, I mean, the first rule at Uncle Jack's house, there is no crying at Uncle Jack's house. Well, what if I get hurt really, really bad? Well, then you can cry. What if I get really, really bad news? Well, then you can cry. But day to day, there is no crying at Uncle Jack's house. Okay, well, what's rule number two? Rule number two, there is no whining. Whining does not work at Uncle Jack's house. Whining literally will make sure that whatever it is you do want, you don't get. Boy, parents, you can learn from Uncle Jack. I'm telling you, and I'm not calling myself Uncle Jack like I do sometimes. I'm saying these are really my, my grandnieces, so I really am a great Uncle Jack, right? I mean, seriously, though. And then, but with Oily Lady, and I love Oil Lady. Those of you that haven't seen her on the blog, some of the most insightful, in-depth, well-researched, fact-backed, posts on the blog, and I'm sure the forum as well, I just don't spend much time on the forum, have come from Oil Lady. Unbelievably smart person. And there's something to this being able to play with a wound while it's healing and understand it. I think this is something that every animal does. You know, Animals lick a wound, they look at it, they chew it, sometimes it makes it worse. They learn from the experience. And I remember being a kid, you know, is that scab ready to come off yet? No, that hurt. That really shouldn't have done that. Now it's, and it, you know, it's, is it, is it pretty to talk about? No. Is it kind of, yeah. But is it, I mean, is somebody going to die from it? No. No. And here's what happens when kids have these injuries and recover, they learn that it's okay to get hurt a little bit or it's okay to have a little bit of adversity or something like that. It makes me think this one day, and it was not about being hurt at all. 
I decided I wanted to go fishing. And this is before I had a car, so I had a bicycle. And every single thing that could go wrong or get in my way or cause me a problem or hold me back or it, just, it was just like one of those days where you drop something and it breaks. Now I've got to fix it. I can't, my fishing rod, I thought I put away nice and neat. The line's all screwed up on it. I don't have any line of the, the weight that I need for it. Now I got to get over to the store and wrap the, and then, you know, the, now dad wants something done before I go. And it was just on and on and on. And by the way, the place I used to fish was about a seven mile bike ride down a freaking highway. Well, not really on the highway, but just off a highway, state highway type stuff to get to the place that I was fishing. And I was about 14 years old. And I remember that day very vividly because I got one of the largest native brook trouts I've ever caught in my life. I also let it go. It was ethics instilled even back then on certain types of fish. You know, you, you just respect what you've got. And I remember thinking to myself, as I finally got there and over half the day was gone and all this crap went on, this is going to be a great day because I had to work so hard for this. That's always when you end up with the best reward. How many of our children would think that way about trying to get something done today? And I'll tell you, I think Oil Lady's right. I think being scratched up and, and bruised and throwing freaking dirt clods at each other when we were kids and hurling apples at each other and bruising your buddy's leg from 50 yards away with an apple thrower. Those who've never heard me talk about apple throwers before, please teach your kids to make apple throwers if you live where there's like what we call windfall apples. So where I lived in Pennsylvania, there were all these apples that just fell, and some of them were okay, but most of them were just not really usable from all these, like, old apple trees, you know. And what we would do is get about a six-foot-long sapling, about as big around at the bottom as, like, a bait-casting rod that tapered to maybe, you know, uh, almost like a fishing rod. You wanted something as close to a fishing rod as you could get, that would hand, but would thick enough to handle what was going on. Sharpen the tip, jam an apple on that sucker, and I'm telling you, you can go, go 100 yards with that thing and get pretty accurate quick. That type of stuff is what built that into me. And I'm not saying every little girl should maybe be that tough. We had some girls that were pretty tough little girls. And I guarantee you, they ain't out crying right now if somebody says they don't like their work at the office. They're either saying, if you don't like my work, I'll go somewhere else, or actually looking at it and going, well, maybe there's a reason I'll fix it. And all of this stuff is connected. And some of the shit we're in for, folks, if you're raising a teacup kid, how are they going to handle it when they really aren't going to eat today? Seriously. How are they going to handle it when they really figure out, you know what, I'm not going to be able to eat today? There is a warrior in the heart of every human being, and it's time we let that warrior loose. A warrior is not evil. We've been convinced in the society that words like warrior and fighter are bad words. They're not. You can be a benevolent warrior. You can be a peaceful warrior. But by God, be a warrior. And a warrior has a few scratches and bruises. And on a final thought, you know what, oil lady, you're absolutely right. Having injuries in your past, feeling pain, is a big part of understanding compassion for others. And if you've been through your whole life wrapped in a foam suit and never experienced pain, empathy and compassion, no doubt, will suffer. Thank you for your call, oil lady. Let's take another call. Hello, Jack. This is Casey from Austin, Texas. I was at your Woody Bed Workshop. And enjoyed myself very much. My question is concerning field phones, either for you or Tim Glantz with Old Grouch's Surplus. I have two German field phones from the 1950s era 
what is the best way to connect these phones over long distances? Uh, example of the distance, uh, approximately 2,000 feet. And any thoughts on burying the cables, too? Thank you for your answer. Appreciate it much. Boy, there's a uh, an interesting question. So the first thing I thought of is, well, uh, what you're looking for is WD-1 uh, wire, WD-1 field telephone wire. So I thought, well, you're asking Tim that old grouch, and uh, I actually had another question that I sent over to him uh, for this week. So I decided to take this one on my own. But I figured, well, let's go over to old grouch's military surplus and search for WD-1. And as soon as I did, I found a half-kilometer spool, 50 bucks. That's the best thing because it's what it's made for. Now, WD-1 is really made for U.S. Um, field phones, but it's pretty damn much the same technology. And the distance you're looking to accomplish is really not com complex at all. And that wire will do everything you need to communicate that far Uh, and it's about 50 bucks a spool, and you need about one and a half spools for the distance that you're talking about, so it's about 100 bucks worth of wire. So it's a pretty simple solution, and it's the best thing from a performance standpoint. But when you get into burying it, there's some things we should talk about. Um, you could direct bury that wire. It will probably be good for years in the ground, but there's a lot of things that could happen to it while it's down there. This kind of opens up a Pandora's box of, well, what do you do? One thing you could do is get you know the lowest pair count um, underground direct berry rated phone cable that you can get your hands on, and it's probably going to be something in the neighborhood of like a 12 pair. And uh, you don't have to know anything about how to pair out wires or, or wire things, you'll just know that you know the one that's blue and white and the one that's white and blue, their dominant pairs, uh, are the ones to use on the other side, and, and you would be fine. You would have additional pairs if something went wrong with a pair, and if you direct bury that, it's probably as safe in the ground as anything. But you're going to find very quickly it's probably gel-filled and, and, and wrapped with a shielding, and it's probably very expensive. I haven't priced it any time recently, But that goes back to my communications days, and it actually might be hard to find a low pair count designed for direct bury. And if you look at high pair count, it's overkill and extremely expensive with the price of copper at being like three, three and a half, whatever it is right now, a pound. Um, you know, even a 50 pair piece of cable is going to have a couple pounds per every few foot just in raw copper. It's a very expensive thing. So that's kind of out. That's kind of not a good idea. If you just had it like somebody had a big spool of it somewhere, it would be ideal. So what can we do to bury this if we want to make sure that 10 years from now, if we really need it and our life depends on it, it's still there? The best thing to do would be to find the, a good, low cost, the cheapest and, and smallest that will fill the role, uh, conduit that's rated for underground burial you can get your hands on. You could just use, you know, PVC pipe. And that might be a little bit cheaper than an underground-rated electrical conduit. But again, you're looking at something that will get brittle over time. It does have the potential for animals to chew through it, but it's probably fine. So I would, if you're going to bury it, I would bury it with conduit. Now, the next thing. Uh, what generally people do when they bury you know, that much conduit is they either run the cable as they bury it, okay, which is okay. So you, you open your trench to the full distance. 
you lay out all your conduit, and if you get the electrical conduit that I'm talking about, you won't need couplers. That, that'll probably even the price out because it's belled on one side and, and, and it's basically male on one side of the pipe and female on the other, and you only use a coupler when you make bends or you get to the end and you have to cut a piece off. So you lay it all out, and then you take your wire, you put your spool up on something so that you can spool it out, and you just push it through, you know, eight, ten feet, whatever length of conduit you have at a time, and you push it through the next one, and you, you couple it together. Um, you can do that, but if you get a conduit that's a little bit bigger, you might be able to fit another something through there in the future, like run power. So you might buy a little bit of oversized conduit. Now, now you've got 1,500 feet of conduit with a piece of wire already in it. How do you get another piece of wire in there if you don't have the money for the wire today or you don't know what you might need today, but in the future you want to plan for it? What you want, my friend, is something called pull string. And you want to leave a piece of pull string in there, and whenever you pull anything into that conduit, you want to pull another piece of pull string behind it. Now, you don't want to go out and use something like paracord, Uh, parachute cord that's very expensive for this, even though it's very, very strong, because it'll cost a lot of money. What you want is the standard everyday pull string that people use to pull data cabling and things like that. It usually runs about $20 per thousand feet. It usually comes in a bucket. If you get in touch with any kind of a local electrical supply house like a Granger or Graybar or something or Annexter, they'll be able to sell that to you. Even, uh, you know, they might have to charge a sales tax because you're not a, one of their typical customers, but if you're paying cash, they'll sell you that. And I would pull that in with it. And then that way in the future, you can pull in maybe a power line through this little pathway that you've created. And that will definitely make the additional investment worthwhile. That's if you are hell-bent on using field telephones for this application and hell-bent on putting them under the ground. Understand the reason these phones were invented in the first place or continued to be used after they were no longer necessary is a better way to put it, is that... They are something that unless somebody actually gets to the wire, you can't tap. You won't be able to pick up a transmission. It's not like radio that can be intercepted. So that's, that's the security aspect. But the, these, these cables, wire spools, were designed so that, let's say I had um, a troop formation, uh, a, you know, like a, a camp or um, a fortified area, or just a, a place that uh, I've located my troops and we're dug in, a defensive position, whatever it is, or uh, you know any type of position like that. And I'm worried that there might be enemy troops in the area. So what I would do is set up something called an LPOP, or Listening Post Observation Post. And out at that LPOP, I would locate a couple soldiers who would be armed, but they would be told under no circumstances engage the enemy and give away our position unless your life is threatened. And sometimes, even in certain situations, it would be radio back and don't fire no matter what. You know, you, you run, you hide, you do whatever, you do not engage. It would all depend on the situation. But one way or another, I've got people, you know, a couple thousand feet out watching in case anybody comes. And they would take that wire and they would roll, roll it out. So they'd have it on a, 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 you know, a pipe. And the two, two guys running it would, would tie it up with the guy that's back at the other end that's going to have the, the in, inbound phone. And they would run it way out there and leave it on the top of the ground. And uh, actually, you generally would leave the reel back with the guy. And a lot of times you'd have a hand crank on that reel. And they would run that line out, and if they ended up exceeding the amount of line on that reel, the guy back there would, would basically stop them, and they would know, and they would wait quietly while they spliced another piece onto it. 
Um, and then you get a double tug, and that means go ahead and you roll it out until you get out to your, your, your LPOP position. Once you're out there, you'd set up your phone and just hook up your phone to it. And now you're in a position where that wire's on the top of the ground. So you have to think when you're setting this up. You've got to put that wire where it's not likely to get snagged. And when you kind of, you know, 86 that location, the guy that you're talking to on the other end, once you've disconnected your phone and you're on your way back in, starts cranking his ass off. And pulls that wire back in, not only so it can be reused, but it's, so it's not out there to become an asset for the enemy, and it's not out there to give the enemy a line back to your location. So this wire was almost never buried in a tactical situation. It was designed to be quickly deployed and quickly, you know, redeployed, quickly taken back in. So that's, that's how it's done. Now, how would I maybe solve this problem without burying any wire? I would probably say you might be better off at the distances you're talking about using MERS radios for your communications medium. Because you can also set up your, your, your motion detectors, which is a force multiplier. And if you go to like the third sub-frequency on the third primary frequency of MERS radio, unless somebody's specifically scanning across the whole spectrum, the odds that somebody will ever hear anything you have to say are extremely, extremely low. Um, doesn't mean it can't happen, doesn't mean it can't be picked up, but it's a very distance-limited uh, technology. You're looking at a one-mile-ish range. So somebody also, also needs to be close enough and know what to listen for to pick you up. So it's, it's pretty secure, but the field phones are completely secure, and if you were going to bury them, I'd do it like I told you. Pipe in the ground, bigger than you needed, Use the recommended fuel foam wire again. That is called WD-1. I'll put a link to where it is on old Grouch's uh, uh, website. And then use your, your simple data cable pull string in there with it. Let's say down the road you decided you wanted to pull a heavier gauge wire into there and you didn't think the pull string was adequate. Well, use the pull string to pull in a pull tape and then use the pull tape To pull that way, you don't have to invest in the pull tape if you if you you might not ever need it. But never put any wire into any conduit underground without leaving a pull string behind because you never know when you want to use that pathway again. That's just the old uh, data cabler, network designer, and outside plant construction person in me uh, giving you that little add-on. Uh, let's go ahead and take another call. Hey Jack, this is Chris from Springville, Utah. Uh, hey, recently I found several 500-gallon metal tanks on three-foot stands for sale. The seller says that these tanks have been clean, but they used to hold methanol. Would you trust these as a meth medium to hold drinking water? Um, my thought is to buy a few of these and use some for my home water storage. Uh, the others would be used to provide drinking water to livestock on a property that currently doesn't have a well or any other water source. Um, thanks for all you do, and, uh, and out. That's an easy one, yes, assuming that you are happy with the quality of the tanks and don't think that you'll have problems with rusting or degrading in other ways. The methanol doesn't concern me at all. Rinse them out and go on with your life. And if methanol was the only thing in there, don't even worry about it. Let me explain why. Uh, methanol has a huge um, fear factor in people going blind and dying from moonshine. And, and the reality is that's even bullshit. Um, I've been through this round and round with Steve Harris to make sure I'm right about it, and, and I am. If you were making moonshine and you didn't throw off what's called the heads, which is generally where most of the methanol ends up, but you collected the entire distillation into one vat 
and mix that methanol through even one run of moonshine. It might not uh, do anything to enhance the flavor of it, but nobody would get sick or die from it. Now, if you took it off in the heads, which is like the first bit that comes out, and then you did that again and you did that again and you did that again through several runs and made a bottle of methanol, yeah, you could kill somebody real easy with it. But if you had an ounce of methanol in a tank with, you know, 500 gallons of water in it, it wouldn't do jack diddly crap deleted, diluted to that level. So a methanol residue, if there is any, on the inside of the tank is meaningless. I would be more concerned about are the tanks dirty, are the tanks sealed well, what type of material are they made out, and if they pass all of that, it's fine for water for drinking, water for livestock, water for your garden, water for anything. And here's the deal. If it was holding methanol and nothing but, and you opened it up once it was empty, and you left it open for a few days, very few things evaporate to nothingness faster than dun, 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 alcohol. This is why if you take a little bit of rubbing alcohol, guess what that is, by the way, what kind of alcohol that is, and uh, you put that on your arm, it feels very, very cold. And if you were to put it on your left, somebody were to take a swab of alcohol and a swab with water that were at the same temperature, room temperature, and wiped your left arm and your right arm, and your left arm was alcohol, you would say that is cooling much faster. That's because of how fast it's evaporating compared to the water. So it's just not worried, worth worrying about. And if they're good tanks, they're great for just about anything you would ever want to do with them. Let's take another call. Hi, Jack. This is Travis. Should I spend $1,000 of my cash to get grid power to a cabin my family will homestead in two years? My wife, infant son, and myself currently live in an urban area and are preferring to live more rural. We have no debt except for a seven-year mortgage at $230 per month on a small, partially finished cabin with five mostly wooded acres in Wisconsin. No power, water, or septic. We have no retirement money. We have $4,000 in cash and about $5,000 in gold and silver coins. I fix espresso machines in the city, earning $16 per hour, and my wife is a stay-at-home mom. We are both preferring to be broke in a rural area with our son than broke in the city, but the comfort of electricity is something we want. Should I spend 25% of my cash to get it sooner rather than later? Thanks, Jack. Easy one, yes. Next question. I'll talk about it a little bit and why the answer is yes, but uh, definitely the answer is yes. If you're going to live in a place and you already are giving up so much to live in a place, power will make your life so much better. I would put it to you this way. If you've decided you can't afford the $1,000 yet, you're not ready to move there yet. I, I mean, I really believe that. And let me kind of discuss what I'm, what I'm thinking here when I talk about the, the, the cost-to-value ratio here. We just had Stephen Harris earlier this week when I said I want to have a little bit of backup power, a little bit of extra power, and enough to run a fan to keep my chicken coop cool and a couple lights in there, um, you know, uh, put together a solar power system for me for about $500. 
And yeah, the fan was 150 bucks worth of it or something like, or 100 bucks worth of it. But it, but right at 500 bucks, just under budget. Uh, with the system being sized such that it was just enough to do the job. And it was actually a little overbuilt, but, but not by much. You know, when I told Steve, well, you know, I might throw a, a little pump into a stock tank or two and, uh, you know, use it for some things now and then out, out there because it's just nice to have it out where it's at. And it really doesn't make sense for me to trench that. I've had people, why don't you just run an extension cord? Because I don't want a 225-foot extension cord laying on the ground. I have to worry about and replace often and worry about running over the lawnmower or tripping on or all these other things. And because trenching it will cost me almost as much as putting the solar system in. That's why, for those of you that are stuck on that. But the point is that, look, at that, that was a $500 system. So what you could build with solar or wind or anything for a thousand bucks is not much. I mean, that's the truth. So if you're going to have power at all, and you should, especially with a wife and a kid and so many other things you're giving up that that place doesn't have yet, um, then you should get the best return on your money. Now, if you said it's going to cost us $10,000 and I have $40,000, which would be the same ratio, 25% of my cash, Should I go on grid? I might say absolutely positively not. With a small cabin in the situation you're in for $10,000, we can build a hell of an off-grid solar system with that, and that will probably be better for you long-term than going and paying this ten grand to bring in a line. But it's not $10,000. It's a thousand bucks. You don't have a great job, but you make 16 bucks an hour. It's not that long of a period of your labor for a payback time. You do have the money. It won't make you completely broke. And you have a reserve of several thousand dollars of gold and silver that could be converted to cash if you needed it. Additionally, I would think that your, your, your cost of living should go down, not up once you make this move. You didn't say whether you're able to keep your job or not. This is a lifestyle choice. I, I can't tell you whether you're making the right life decision for yourself. Only you can determine that. However, what I can tell you is this. If you're going to do it, the thousand bucks will probably be the best thousand dollars that you've ever spent. Let's take another call. Hi, Jack. This is Nick from Poland, Ohio. Uh, quick, two, quick, two quick questions, actually. Is there an alternative to Roundup, safe, organic, something something other than Roundup, kill weeds around property lines, things like that? Uh, second question, a couple months ago, you mentioned a magazine that is better than Mother Earth News. Uh, can you let us know what that is again? Thank you. Bye. Alternative herbicides, um, yeah, but you're probably not going to be happy with the results long term, and you probably wouldn't be happy with the results long term if you use the toxic gick herbicide either. But two things you can do that will, you know, basically knock back weeds. One would be a dilution of water and vinegar, fairly high ratio of vinegar, and spray that, and that will have a fairly good organic herbicidal effect on a lot of weeds. And there's a lot of other little potions and lotions people have come up with to do this. Um, but the reality is if you're killing plants, you're killing plants. And if you're killing plants, you're probably going to kill more than plants that you want to. And eventually you're probably going to end up with plants that come back that are stronger and better and more adapted to whatever herbicide you're using. And they're probably not going to be the ones you want. The more adverse you make the condition, the more radical and spiky and tough the weed will come to respond to you. Another way you can do it, and this is a pretty good way as long as you do it at the right time when it's rained recently and everything's kind of wet, is to use a weed flamer. 
a little blowtorch. I have one. I use it to keep some paths clear and stuff like that, and it works fairly well. You don't have to completely burn up the weeds. If you hit them with it pretty good, they'll die back, and then they'll come back again, and they'll come back again, and you'll do it again, and they'll come back again, and you'll do it again. And the growth season for the weeds will end, and then they will go away for a while, and they will come back in the spring, and you can do it again. This is an endless cycle. I don't care if it's Roundup. I don't care if it's water and vinegar. I don't care what it is. Now, we can address this another way. Number one, is it really a because you're talking about property lines and fence lines now. So we can just say, is it really a problem in the first place? Or is it something that a couple times a year I'm just going to cut down, let it go to the ground, and be part of my fertility cycle? Maybe we can just get over it. I mean, that's one thing we can do. We can just get over it. We can just say, you know what? It doesn't matter. The grass is a little tall next to my fence. I don't care. It's all right. You can't have a bare spot there. It's not possible. If we have a certain noxious weed that's becoming a problem that's, that's got like a base of operations there, then maybe we go back and prune that out and let the other weeds be advantaged, the ones that aren't that big of a problem. All right? So that's, that's one thing we can do. If we really want to solve the problem, there's, there's only two ways we can solve the problem. We can take the entire property line and put it under concrete that's impenetrable, and that'll work for a while until the weeds start coming up around and through cracks and things like that. But it would stop, and it's not very practical now, is it? The other would be to occupy the space with something we do want. So if we have fence lines or property lines that we can go in there and we can shrub them, we can put in vines that climb on the fence, we can put something in there to take the space. If you don't do that, you will constantly deal with weeds, and you will have to decide how you will make peace with those weeds. You can make peace with those weeds by going, I don't really care, it's not that big a deal, I'm going to go and cut them to the ground a few times a year, and as long as you don't have a you know a, a hundred acres of fence line you're dealing with, it's probably not that big a deal. I have about three acres, it doesn't bother me. Um, if you had a lot of land, you should be grazing it anyway, and the animals will definitely take care of that for you. Uh, so a smaller property, it's not that big a deal. Or we're going to have to occupy the space. And I don't care what you spray on it. That's not going to change. And I, everybody always see, and this is the problem we have with organic agriculture, permaculture, etc., non-toxic growing, I don't care what you call it. We're, we're practicing the same thing that's a problem that people do in alternative medicine. If I have a headache... I'm going to take aspirin in the conventional world. But since I don't want to take aspirin, I'm going to take white willow bark. Okay, That is replacement therapy, and it's not very effective. It can be used for acute situations. So I have a place where the weeds are really a problem. Maybe I'll hit them with some vinegar. See how it works. Until I figure out what to do long term. I got a headache. Maybe I'll take some willow bark because I can't think with the freaking headache. And I need to get past the headache so I can think about what's causing the problem. But a headache is not an aspirin deficiency. A headache is not a Tylenol deficiency, and a headache is not a white willow bark deficiency. A headache is caused by some type of systemic problem. So it's, re it's rectification. If it's, if it's one headache every 10 years, I, take the willow bark and don't worry about it. But if it's a chronic condition, you have headaches a couple times a week, then it requires systemic thinking. I have to think about the total system and why my head hurts, and I have to rectify the imbalance in the system so that I'll stop getting headaches, Or I'm just going to be taking willow bark or aspirin for the rest of my life. And eventually, my, I'll, I'll develop some level of tolerance to it, and it won't be as effective, and the headache will be more, not less of a problem. Does that sound like weeds and herbicide at all? Because we're not thinking systemically. So when we think systemically, we have to say to ourselves, why is that weed growing there? 
There's a, there, let's do this. Let's analyze this. Why are there so many dadgone weeds on the fence line? Well, because we're probably mowing. And we can mow right up to that fence line. And then weed eating that fence line is a pain in the ass. String trimmer jams up against it and all. So we're just not cutting it to the ground the way that we are. That's, that's one thing. The other thing, though, is that fence is creating a microclimate. It's warmer there at some times of the year. It's colder there at other times of the year. The next thing, that fence has posts that go into the ground. Whenever you put things that go into the ground, you increase the infiltration of water. So there's probably more moisture there. Because the plants grow taller, they're creating some of their own shade, shading their own root systems, and doing a better job of returning moisture. Because that's happening, they're putting roots down further into the ground than they would out in a pasture or a lawn. Because that's happening, the plants that are there tend to be weeds with deep tap roots that can you know, capitalize on that situation, and they become more and more resilient. This means that we have a microclimate best suited to plants that can handle it being colder in winter than normal and warmer in summer than normal, but need additional moisture and have the ability to put roots down deeper than conventional plantings. So when we put something in its place, we should think about that and try to put a perennial planting in place that's beneficial to us, either because it's pleasing to the eye or pleasing to the palate or both. Right? It's either giving us something to eat, something nice to look at, or both. And we put that in that place, and we train it to occupy that space, and we begin to disadvantage the weeds, and we can do this just by cutting them down and advantage the planting by saying, does this prefer alkaline or acidic soil, and what do I have, and can I swing it a little bit for a while? And we'll do some companion planting and put not one species in there, but ten over time that will occupy the space, and something that we can mow right up against, when we mow our lawn or our pasture and we mow right past it and if we cut a little bit off the edge because we hit it with the, the lawnmower or the tractor, it's not that big a deal. It's not like hitting a fence post and voila, the problem is gone forever. That's how we fix the problem. We cannot fix the problem by spraying it with anything. And we also have to say, is it really a problem? If it's just because I don't like the little bit higher grass by the fence, maybe it's a problem with me and not the system at all. It all depends. Maybe it is a problem. Maybe it's growing a weed that's quite noxious, that's going to seed, that's blowing into my well-managed pasture that's becoming a problem, and maybe I do need to address it. And maybe I need to address it through a large systemic replacement like I just described, or maybe I need to address it by going, that is thistle. It goes to seed in month X. Therefore, I will cut it to the ground in month Y. It all depends on how much time you have, how much labor you want to put in. But spraying will not fix your issues. Let's take another call. Oh, hold on real quick there. I forgot to answer the second question that you slipped in. Magazine that I prefer to Mother Earth News. If it's from a while ago, and I mentioned it specifically that way. It was probably Countrywide and Small Stock Journal. I think that is an incredibly deep, resourceful magazine, and I love it, and I am a subscriber. Two others that I deeply prefer to Mother Earth News, and I don't want to beat up on Mother Earth News. I still read them as well. They just get to be annoying with the constant political bullshit drug in every other article has to mention climate change no matter what it's about and it gets annoying after a while um and and it, it it's getting to a point where i don't feel like i'm learning anything new from mother earth news it's like they're recycling the same information they're not being very innovative anymore 
Um, whereas Countryside and Small Stock Journal is sourcing articles from hundreds of people, uh, a lot of them bloggers. I've even seen Paul Wheaton had an article in Countryside. So that is a very d large breadth of knowledge of people that are doing new cutting-edge things, even with old technologies. The other one that I really like, I was turned on to by Ben Falk, and it's called Acres USA. And it's a farming magazine. It's primarily targeted toward organic and permaculture farmers. And it is fabulous if you're deep into the, the, the larger scale ag side of things and you like reading about things from urban farms up. If you want gardening advice, some of it's in there. A lot of it's transferable, but it focuses a lot more on the ranching farming side of things. And I think it's outstanding. And last but certainly not least would be uh, Backwoods Home Magazine. I find it be uh, so much more uh, useful to me than Mother Earth News because it's got such a more broad breadth of subjects on self-sufficiency and self-reliance. And I prefer all three of those, though I'm still a Mother Earth News reader, at least for now. Let's go ahead and take that other call now. Hi, Jack. Michael Jordan, the Bee Whisperer on your forum. Former podcast person on group prepping. And I have an update for you. We're looking for a publisher for our Dollar Source Survivalist Manual. Uh, want to know if you had any information, anybody in our uh, community that uh, would help us out. Like I said, we're doing the Dollar Store Survivalist Handbook off of your Uh, challenge that you did for us. And we've uh, finished our manual, and we're looking for somebody that would be able to help us publish it. But uh, we are short on money, and we're looking for a little help. And then I wanted to tell you about my trip to South Dakota. I went to visit our national monuments up there, went through bear country, and was followed by three buses from Asia through the bear country. Went to the trinket shop. The man was describing to about 300 people on these buses, uh, bear country, and they could get uh, souvenirs and trinkets at this shop. One Asian man walked over, picked up one of the little carved bears. Uh, the bears ranged from eight foot to about the size of a quarter. And he picked up one and looked at it, and all he could say was, I come all the way to America to get souvenir, and it made in goddamn China. And uh, it was kind of funny. And then I realized uh, he was trying to say it in English to let everybody know his disgust. And uh, being somewhere where he wanted to take back national history and suspect his country of his trip to America, and it was all made in China. I was embarrassed, Jack. I was embarrassed. I just wanted to share that with you, of my embarrassment of our national treasures, our Native American history, and it's all uh, brought to us by a foreign country that we're so smug we can't even make our own products here. And I just wanted to share that with you, Jack, that, uh, my embarrassment and how I feel about that, and I wanted to see about a publisher. Uh, thanks, Jack, for everything you do, and you guys have a blessed day. Let's start off with the book thing. Um, you might reach out to Glenn Tate, uh, who you can find as Heavy G on the forums, one of the moderators, and ask him if he would introduce you to somebody over at Prepper Press, who is who's publishing the 299-day series. I know they're a very aggressive publisher. They work hard for 
they're, they're folks and they are not, you know, a big time random, you know, random house or something like that that's not going to talk to you. Uh, that would be one avenue from a more conventional aspect of get, getting a publisher who will, you know, take care of a lot of things and get you into a lot of places uh, that maybe you wouldn't get without them. The other company that I would check into, and you can probably email them right off their website, and they'll at least talk to you and at least discuss things with you, would be Paladin Press. Uh, I don't know if they would be particularly interested in something like this, but they might be. And they have a very aggressive advertising marketing campaign. Most of their stuff you're not going to see on the shelves of Barnes and Noble or anything like that, but they're, they have been in business forever. Uh, they do give a discount to the, uh, the survival podcast member support brigade, uh, a very good one, by the way. And they have an incredible breadth of product. They have an aggressive catalog marketing campaign, email marketing campaign, social media campaign. So, uh, it would be advantageous to get into there. Those are the two places I would think first and foremost about getting something published. And again, I guarantee you if you email Glenn Tate and say, hey, can you at least introduce me to somebody at Prepper Press, he'll do it. And I won't guarantee you, but I would bet probably 10 to 1 odds that you'll at least get a response from Paladin, even if you just email their marketing department or their customer service department and say, hey, we'd like to talk to somebody over there about this book that we're putting together. Here's where it is, here's where it comes from, and this is what we're thinking. Now, the, the good news, though, is you live in a day and age where you don't need anybody to do this. Um, there's two websites I would check out and look at you know, how much work it's going to take for you guys to format, design a cover, and things like that, but where you can start selling these books uh, one-off at little to no expense at all to yourselves. And those are lulu.com, L-U-L-U dot C-O-M, lulu.com, and createspace.com. And it seems that most people who have used both seem for some reason, I don't know why, because I haven't really used either one heavily, uh, but create space seems to be preferred. These are what are called print-on-demand publishers, which means when somebody orders a book, it's printed on demand. It spits it out, and it goes and it gets shipped. With these providers, you can even sell through Amazon.com, etc. You won't have books on the shelf, you know, at, at a B. Dalton bookstore or something like that, but people will be able to buy from Amazon or directly from you. So I would highly recommend that you consider doing that. I would highly recommend you get it into electronic format that is compatible with Kindles and sell it through the Kindle store on Amazon.com as well. And I believe CreateSpace and Lulu can both basically help you with that and it's pretty much do it on your own. Here's a template or here's what you need to do. They, they tell you how to do it. Or they can get you in touch with people that do it for a living that will do it pretty low cost. So that would be a way to do it. Another way to do it would be able to do, to do it just completely as an ebook. Put it into a PDF, put it on a website, and sell it as an ebook. What if somebody copies of it? I don't care. I think that people that worry too much, you know, what if somebody distributes it for free? I don't care. Put a thing in the front and the back of the book about copyright and say, you know, if you like this book, please consider paying for this copy if you've received it in violation of our copyright. And you'll be surprised at how many more books you'll sell uh, than if you had worried more about it and tried to prevent it from happening in the first place. So those are the, the three main avenues. You either go with a conventional publisher, and I, again, I would look to either Prepper Press or Paladin Press, and I would talk to both of them. Uh, I, you go with a print-on-demand publisher like Lulu or CreateSpace, or you go a direct-to-consumer model with an electronic product, which, by the way, is the most profitable. If you sell uh, 100 books at $10 profit apiece, you just made $1,000. If you sell 1,000 books at a dollar apiece, you just made $1,000. Which one's easier to do? 
I'm a big fan of selling electronic versions of books today. Most books that I buy, unless they're very photograph intensive, and then they're going to be expensive to produce, uh, I am buying an electronic format. And as things like Kindle apps and things like that have gotten better and better, I've moved more toward even buying those in electronic format. It's the books I want on my shelf for research and for a library for students to come to workshops that I tend to buy in hard copy anymore. Uh, great call. Uh, hopefully that helps more than just you. I'm sure there's a lot of people out there writing books. Uh, those are my suggestions for you. Let's take another call. Now, dang it, I did it again. You guys slipping these double questions in and double comments in are messing me up. Okay, so the thing about you know, made in China souvenirs at places like, you know, probably you're in South Dakota, so like Mount Rushmore and things like that. Um, I'm not as upset about it as you are. And I'll tell you why. Because it's just the stupid shops that are sitting there. Um, I've been through a lot of places like that, the Dakotas, uh, northern Arizona, once you get up out of Phoenix into the Black, the Black Oak Canyon and stuff like that. If you want it, if you want to buy stuff that's made by Native Americans and local people, it's all over the place. It's all over the place. Um, what we have here is, is, is a, is a different type of a problem than the one that you're seeing. It's all these little chintzy gift shops and these tour buses and people that, that when they come to explore any place, be it here or be it in Europe or be it in Asia or wherever it is, go through this predetermined path. Um, the gentleman that you saw that was either from China or Japan or whatever that was disgusted, what he needed to do is probably walk about a half a mile or a mile away from where he was and, and, and go see some people that actually are selling stuff that they made or their family made or their tribe made right on the side of the road. Um, it's all over the place. It, 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 it's not really anybody's fault that you can get a, you know, a, a bear that's not carved from wood but stamped from plastic made in China at a U.S. government-run national park store other than the fact that people buy it. They sell what people buy, and the majority of the people that come into those locations are soccer moms with their soccer kids that just want some trinket, and they buy cheap shit. It's consumer-driven demand, and people come in and out as quickly as possible, and they're trying to make some money to run the park. That's all it is. I'm not ashamed of that. There are so many things that I'm ashamed of in America today that that's minor. That's that's just not one of them. It really isn't. There's so many things that we're screwing up with the way we're raising our children, what they're teaching them in school, how we are handling things like uh, privacy issues and, and, and stepping on people's rights, that where a plastic bear comes from, that's that's not really that big a concern to me. I'm more concerned with why don't those visitors get to see the people who are there that want to meet them, do business with them, and tell them about their history? Taking the true artifact or the true Native American thing and putting it into the gift shop is a step in the right direction. But it really doesn't solve the problem. It would be better for that man from China or Thailand or wherever he was from to put his hand in the hand of the person who is directly connected to that and deal with him and let them work over their language barrier 
and begin to understand each other. Just changing what's in the bin at the gift shop wouldn't really fix anything. Let's go ahead and take that next call. Hey, Jack. This is Johnny down in Louisville, Kentucky. Just wanted to thank you for your uh, the services you're providing. Uh, and i got three quick things. I'm going to make them quick. Number one, uh, the dis- discouraged gardener that you had on uh, your, uh, your call-in show the other day, um, I just wanted to tell him to hang in there and to think of this as practice for when the shit really does hit the fan. you gotta, you got to be ready for those kind of uh, um, problems to come up and uh, just think of it as practice. Then I have a couple questions. One is, does if you use stabilizer in diesel and gasoline, would diesel inherently last longer um, and and stay you know good longer than gasoline? And the other is, what are your thoughts on using a guitar case, a soft-sided guitar case, as your bug-out bag? Because I have to put mine in and out of the car every day because uh, I can't park in a secure location and I have a weapon in it and I don't want to leave it in the car overnight. Uh, so just, just your thoughts. Thanks, guys. Man, you guys are killing me. So we got three here, and I'm going to try not to screw up and have to append uh, this time. So let's start out with not getting the surge with your gardening. I, I completely agree, and I, I think that I, it, I think it should help people out there who are to understand how tough a year I've had this year. I've had some great successes, and I've had some pretty tough failures because you're starting over. So if a person with years of experience coming to a new piece of property and starting over and having to realize some of the things I did before don't quite work here or I have to tweak them this way, this land is not as fertile as where I was before, I have to do this. And and if a person like that has some struggles, of course when you're new to something you're going to have some struggles. And I want everybody that gardens and does permaculture and everything to understand this. Most of what you see that people put into pictures and video is the best of their results. Very few of us really get excited about putting out our failures. Most of us, me included, I'm not embarrassed by my failures. I'm like, yeah, it's, I'm just not real excited and happy about them. And videoing and publishing is time consuming and in some levels it's a pain in the ass. So I'm much more likely to do the work to get video up for you or photos up for you about something good than on something bad that I'm disgusted about. But I, if you go back and look at my videos, you'll see me showing you squash plants completely devastated by vine borers. Just, just devastated. You'll see me showing you tomato plants that, you know, the one year when blight was really bad. I did everything I could to grow some freaking tomatoes without them being blighted and it still sucked. And eventually the next year I just did tomatillos and said, the hell with tomatoes for a year. I stopped cultivating the blight. So even the experienced person is going to have successes and failures. I'm not real satisfied with a lot of things that happened this year. I got a lot of my stuff that went in early hammered by hail. And then a lot of stuff went in late. And a lot of stuff was establishing new beds. And, you know, I'm like, this is not a great year. Everybody keeps saying the garden looks great. I'm like, this not really does it. And then uh, Nick, uh, uh, who Nick Bertner from Working with Nature, who I'm going to get an interview on for you next week, intern with Jeff Lawton was out here yesterday, and we're walking through the garden looking at my failures, and he's going, "Holy crap! Look how many peppers are there! Oh, look at this! Look at that! That's producing! It's it's, it's you know like what?" And we found some interesting microclimates. Like I'm like, "Look at that clump of arugula! 
Arugula should be bolting like crazy right now in this heat. And it's like, we put our hand down in this one spot. It was like 10, 15 degrees cooler in this one little nook in the, in the hugel bed we made. And it was awesome. And it was like, even in, even in, like what I look at as a failure, there's still a lot of successes. And I think that that's important too, to be happy about what does work and to start working more and more toward putting more perennials and hardy things and grow some herbs and stuff. And you can't live on herbs, but when you have a great big basil plant, And you can cook with it, and a great big parsley plant, you can cook with it, and a couple blackberry bushes, and you can pick those, you, 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 and you know, get some chickens and start getting some eggs. Man, since we started getting eggs, we're getting about five eggs a day now. We can't keep up with eating them, but I've realized like that is like such higher quality nutrition than a pepper ever will be, and they just show up every day, and the chickens are happy, and they lay eggs, and they eat the bugs, and they're on grasshoppers right now, and they're getting lots of protein, and they're happy, and I'm happy, and so... Yeah, I agree. Hold it out. Okay, next. Stabilizing fuel, gas versus diesel. Will diesel inherently store longer if both are stabilized and stored properly? I'm not going to go into anything about how to store fuel. I'm just going to say the answer is yes. Diesel inherently, if both are stored to the best ability that you can, to the most optimal conditions, diesel generally will last significantly longer as a valid fuel than gasoline. End of story. That's because you got three in. Last, building a bug out bag out of a guitar case. I have no problem with it, assuming a couple things. Is it rugged enough that if you have to pick it up and go somewhere with it, it's going to hold together? Test it before you say yes. Does it hold everything you need? If the answer to both of those are yes, I don't care if it's a guitar case. I don't care if it's a backpack. I don't care if it's a suitcase. As long as you can get it where you need it to go and you can use it at least at some level hands-free when necessary and still be able to get it to go where you want it to go, I think it makes a fine bug-out bag. I had to speed up on that one because you got three in and the show is definitely going to be a long show today. Let's take another question. Hey, Jack. John in West Virginia again. Uh, I want to tell you about the sap caps you was talking about, the ball caps with the powdered lead in the back or the steel shot. I'm a big fan of them, and they seem to work very well. But the one thing you do not ever, ever, ever want to do is try to swat a fly with your hat on a window. Been there, done that. I just thought that'd be a little, you know what I mean. <laughs> All right, later, Jake. Well, I love John from West Virginia so much, and he's such like part of the family around here, and I love hearing from him. So uh, he actually made two calls in a row, and you're about to hear another call by him that's more of a, a, a tough question. But this is this is kind of funny, and I never thought about it. For those that are going, what the hell was that guy talking about? He's talking about a slap cap. Now, what a slap cap is, it looks like a black baseball cap made out of leather. 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 Inside it, it's like a heavy-duty bill that you can grab, and inside it is a lined pocket full of birdshot, like shotgun pellets. It weighs about, I think it's about 12 ounces. It's light enough that when it's on your head, you don't really know it's there. But when you pick it up and you smack the shit out of somebody with it, they go, ow, and they generally let go of you. It is a self-defense tool. Uh, it's not something they're going to fall over, roll around on the ground, and die because you hit them with it. But if you wanted to break contact with somebody that grabs your arm and you just instinctively grab that cap and slap the back of those knuckles, I promise you, you've just basically took a blackjack to work on them. That's basically what it is. It's a blackjack you wear on your head. Before you run off and buy one, and I will put a link in the show notes to where you can find one today if you want to, understand in some stupid states, Massachusetts, they're considered a blackjack and are considered illegal. Okay, 
They're considered illegal. So make sure you check with your state, and if you live in Massachusetts, then maybe you don't need to be buying one of these, or you need to be damn careful if you do. Just saying. Massachusetts sucks, is what I'm saying. Massachusetts, birthplace of the revolution, is now one of the most oppressive states. I'm not going to get sidetracked. but So that's what he's talking about. So what you have to remember if you're wearing one of these things is it's not your typical hat, and don't use it to correct your dog or slap a fly off a window. <laughs> Thanks for the humor, John. Let's hear your other question, brother. Hey, Jack. This is John in West Virginia. Got a twofer for you. I have a 86 model K5 Blazer 6.2 liter diesel. It's going to be a daily driver and uh, sort of a bug out vehicle. It needs some body work, but other than that, it's mechanically sound. I am curious on what I could do about making uh, an alternate power source out of it, considering it was 24 volt but it does have a power source in the back and uh just i guess that'd be for steve harris i was uh then just wanting to hear what maybe uh the old grouch would have to say about the k5 blazer as itself uh like to wish you and all the other tsb listeners a happy uh independence day that's all i got for you man thanks a lot Uh, okay, so here's what I'm going to tell you starting out about backup power for your Chevy K5 Blazer. Let's help people out here. A Chevy K5 Blazer is a civilian equivalent to the M1009 CUCV, or they called it a cut V. It's a military Blazer, and John mentioned that it used to be 24 volts. So I'm thinking maybe you don't have a K5 Blazer, the civilian equivalent, that would have come originally 12 volts. What you have is an old military vehicle that may have been converted over to 12 volts and for some reason retitled as the civilian equivalent of a K5. I'm not sure. I really don't know. I'd have to look at it to be sure. But in essence, they're the same vehicle. Um, there's some de certain modifications like some tow shackles and things like that on the military version. Um, the interior is generally a little nicer of the civilian version. So it doesn't really matter what you have. You have the same vehicle. And apparently whether or not it ever was 24 volts, it's now a 12-volt vehicle. This is a good thing for backup power because 12-volt inverters are cheap. So there's a couple things you could do for backup power on this vehicle. There would be the super simple method. And the super simple method would just be go out and get yourself something like an 800-watt um, power inverter. And I would screw that down to a, a you know a piece of uh, a 2x12, a little bit bigger than it, so that it will sit like Steve does in his videos. And uh, you use battery clamps with that. You you would so you'd have to pop the hood whenever you needed to use it, and you pop your hood and you you, you hook it up and you use it as an inverter. And that nice piece of wood, you can set it you know up under the hood somewhere, bring the hood down and keep it out of the rain if it's raining or a little bit anyway. And uh, you you have it there and it won't fall over on you. And that's the simplest thing. If you wanted to do a Stephen Harris battery backup system, Steve might tell you to use a lot of caution. Uh, because you, unlike a pickup truck where you would have it in the back of the pickup truck in a toolbox, you've got it in the vehicle with you, and this is why he says, well, don't put it in the trunk of a car. Um, but that's a beefy vehicle. That is a beefy-ass vehicle, and it would be quite conceivable to bolt a battery cage 
down to even into the frame of that vehicle behind that seat and put the, a couple batteries in a cage. And once you did that, you just figure out the layout back there, and you could build a standard Stephen Harris battery backup system. Uh, you would want to make sure that is extremely secure, and and because you do have a heavy weight now in the back of the vehicle. Um, but if it's going to come out of a, a well-constructed, welded cage, it's probably going to do the same type of thing um, with the back of a pickup truck. With one caveat, you have to actually worry about the batteries themselves kind of rupturing and exploding as they impact the cage. So um, it's something that I think people have to make a decision for themselves based on safety. Steve would probably say, "Don't do it." I'd say, "You know, you probably can do it." And I would also tell you that you know this might be a place because of a rupture concern during an impact. I don't see any reason the battery cannot be strapped down, held in place, caged into a point where it ain't going nowhere. And if it does, to a point where if it does, you're probably dead anyway, just to be blunt. Um, but I do see how that could end up flailing lead acid into the air. So instead of using a great big six volt battery pack built, you know, of two or four golf cart batteries, this might be a really good application for AGM batteries, liquid or the gel, the gel batteries, right? Because that's not going to happen there. Uh, they're not going to rupture. They're not going to vent. They're not going to do anything. And you know, maybe four of those um, kept 12 volts and run back a charge controller controlled, you know, off of your alternator if you wanted to deck it out with power. There's another option. If it used to be 24 volts, and it may have, and you lift up the hood, you will probably see a place where a second battery used to go. And there may already be a second battery there. I don't know. They may have just changed. I've seen it done both ways. Usually with diesels, you've got two batteries, but not always. And all they do when they make a conversion from a 24-volt to a 12-volt system, other than to change a few components, like starter motors... <laughs> is you take the batteries that used to be hooked up in what's called... So you anyway, you had the batteries hooked up in what's called a series, which is negative to positive between your bridges. And what that's going to do is double the voltage. So your two batteries, your two 12-volt batteries now hooked up in series become 24 volts. Well, you flip it around and you do positive to positive, negative to negative, ground to ground, positive to, 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 to wherever that power needs to run to in that vehicle, and you end up with parallel, and you end up with double the capacity, same voltage. And most of the times when a 24-volt vehicle is converted to 12-volt, they still run on two batteries. You just change it to a parallel configuration versus a series configuration. Why is this important? Because you have quite a bit of reserve capacity in those two batteries, So going back to just that standalone inverter that you hook up to them, you have quite a bit of power there. And if you idle the vehicle every once in a while to keep batteries topped off, you're in pretty good shape. And it just means you have more reserve capacity than a typical vehicle. Now, if we go out and buy the best performing, highest rated batteries we can get that will fit in that space for that vehicle, maybe that's all we need. Depends on how much backup power you want, John, and what you want to do. The easy answer, the cheap answer, the quick, wonderful answer, well, get yourself a roof rack, throw 10 gallons of gasoline up there, and go get yourself a little uh, Honda or similar inverter generator, and you'll have more power than you know what to do with. And that's really the easiest answer. Um, and up there on that roof rack, what you want to do is uh, put yourself... Um, 
maybe five, four or five jerry cans and put a couple of diesel jerry cans up there that are green and a couple of gasoline ones up there red so you don't screw it up. And that way you'll have gas for your generator and diesel for your truck. It probably ain't worth the cost of buying a diesel generator for an application like this. But uh, that's what I would do. In fact, you could even get yourself a really cheap little, you know, two or three K generator like sell tractor supply for a couple hundred dollars. Uh, and that may be a better solution. Uh, again, though, you got a pretty heavy device back there. Make sure it's well secured in the back of your vehicle. Those are uh, three different options that I can come up with you for having backup power in that vehicle, John. Uh, thanks for, uh, for calling in. Uh, the vehicle itself, you know, comments on it. I have, instead of sending that to Tim, Tim did a whole show with me on those particular vehicles as bug-out vehicles. I'll put a link in today's show notes for you so you can listen to a blast from the past on it. Hey, Jack. This is Blake out in Texas. I just got hired with a police department, something that I've been trying to do for four years now. But I just wanted to let you know that the first thing I plan on doing is joining Oath Keepers. And just wanted to make a promise to all the listeners out there that uh, I will not be some asshole with a badge like we've been seeing in the news lately. I will remember that I'm a human being and remember that the people that I'm serving are human beings. I will treat them with respect. And I'm here here to serve my community, not to be some thug with a badge and a gun. So I encourage everyone else out there uh, to do the same and have respect for one another. Thanks, Jack, for all you do. And uh, appreciate it, buddy. Bye. Uh, let me say, first of all, thank you. Thank you for your intent to go serve and for your commitment from the beginning to serve constitutionally as you're supposed to. Let me warn you about something, though. I've talked to a lot of cops who have been on the job 15, 20 years. It started out just like you did, and they get jaded. And they get to where they suspect everybody and they suspect everything because they see the worst part of society from day to day. The important thing to remember, while you always need to be safe and you always make sure you never compromise your safety because you're trying to be a nice guy, if you have any reason to believe there might be any threat or danger when dealing with a suspect, but try to remember that not everybody's an asshole, not everybody's a criminal. And remember that people have rights. And that when you finally get that badge, before you do, you will swear to uphold and defend the Constitution of the United States And I'm going to think, based on the number you called in from, the great state of Texas. Remember those constitutions and read those documents. And read them a couple times a year, especially as you get deeper into that job and get more and more jaded by the people that really do make your job difficult. So remember that the rest of us are out here, and you can't uphold and defend the Constitution and serve those you swore to protect under it if you're violating it. So thank you for your service. Thank you for your commitment. Thank you for your support of Oath Keepers. And as you get further along in your career and get some seniority and some respect, remember to pass along that common sense, that integrity, and that sense of duty to the junior officers that will eventually serve underneath you. With that, let's go ahead and take another call. Hi, Jack. This is Lisa in Oklahoma. And I have a question for you um, going Back to basics with being a new shooter. Uh, I'm a new shooter, relatively new gun owner, and uh, I have a 22 pistol. And I was just wondering, uh, what can I do with uh, the brass um, after I've gone to the range or, or something and, and been shooting a, a lot of ammo? Um, I hate to have that stuff go to waste. I'm not sure what the range does with it all, but I wondered if there were any other options besides sweeping it up and, 
and putting it in the trash or making jewelry out of it. Um, and I was also wondering if you had any resources for those of us who are new to gun ownership and, and guns on uh, learning about the different types of guns that are out there and um, the different ammo and, you know, what the differences are even within, like, the 22 uh, long rifle ammunition. When I look online, I see, of course, there's the different manufacturers, and then there's the subsonic and, and different things and uh, the hollow points and the uh, lead points and all that kind of stuff. So I just wondered if you had any good resources for those of us that are new and aren't as knowledgeable yet about that sort of thing of uh, where we could go to find some more information and have some good reference material. Thanks for all you do. Uh, starting out with the 22 brass, there's not a ton to be done there. There are tools that you can find online and buy. And if you, if you Google this, you'll find all kinds of information on it. I can't go deep into it, but where basically what you do is cut the case and swag it, which is like a, a method of resizing and, and, and shaping. And it becomes a jacket for a 22 caliber bullet to be used on like a 223 or 5.56, uh, which, you know, is your, your, your AR-15 round. Your, your, not your only AR-15 round, but your conventional AR-15 round. 223, uh, Remington, 5.56 millimeter NATO. Uh, they're not exactly the same, but there's, they're, they're the same enough for this discussion without getting deep into it with a new person. Um, But I, I almost think it's not worth it. I almost think it's not worth the effort. Um, basically, 22 brass is junk brass. You could save it and collect it for a long time and eventually take a huge bag of it to, uh, to a junk pile place and, and sell it as brass. Um, I'm sure somebody somewhere has at some point come up with something cool to do with it. I'm sure somebody could come up with something to do with it, and God knows there's enough of it out there. Um, that it would be great if somebody figured out what to do with it, but but I, I really don't know. Now, on understanding ammunition and ballistics and calibers and things like that, um, I did a, a, an episode 855 called Understanding Caliber Millimeter Gauges and Ballistics um, that is a pretty intensive course on this stuff, and you might have to listen to it a couple times to really get it, but I did break it down. Pretty simple. I also did one called Seven Underrated Centerfire Rifle Calibers, where I go into a lot of things that are really kind of advanced, but they're not. And it actually, I think, would be great if new people to firearms understood these things so they're not led astray by marketing. Um, and if you understand the things in that episode, a lot of the other things, it's almost like you've cracked the code now and they'll make sense to you. So that's... That's another episode. And then there's one called All About Ballistics, Ammunition, and Components. And that was episode 382. Those would be great episodes to listen to. Now, the nice thing is I tagged them all with the tag Ballistics. So they're all available at the survivalpodcast.com slash tag slash ballistics. And uh, they would be really worth listening to. And I'll put a link to that tagged page Uh, and there's a few other things there you can listen to, but those would be the three ones I would most recommend as far as my resources on the ballistics side. You also might want to go listen to episode 75, and as old as that is, it makes me realize I need to do a show on this again. It's the basics of reloading. And a lot of people that don't have any interest in reloading, it's amazing how much you would learn about shooting 
and ammunition and pressures and, and all of the things that make sense from a gun point of view when relating to ammunition, if you learned about even if you didn't participate in reloading. So I'll put a link to that page for you as well in today's show notes. Um, another great resource would be if you would just get a hold of any reloading manual. Uh, the, the, the Lee manual, uh, by Lee would be great. Uh, the, uh, the, the Sierra manual, uh, I'm sorry, it's the Spear manual, I think. Let me go, it's on my shelf in front of me right now. I don't know which one it is, but I recognize the cover, and I know it would be a good one. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you just a second. It's the Spear, S-P-E-E-R, uh, reloading manual, or the Hornady. Uh, it's a two-part set from Hornady. Each of those would be very valuable. The, the Lee manual, if you read it, will go through the entire process of reloading, including you know low pressure loads. Um, it'll go through how to cast bullets uh, and, and use them differently, uh, understanding hardness, understanding the way bullets perform. And then it has a ton of reloading information you may not use, but it would be worth it just for the storyline and the explanation prior to the loading data. Um, both the Hornady and Spear manuals. Every single cartridge, it tells you about why it was invented, what it was used for, how it was used, uh, what it's loaded best with. And it, just reading those teaches you so much. Again, even if you're not going to be a reloader. And the book that does a lot of the same thing is a book called Cartridges of the World. So from the standpoint of not really learning about guns, but learning about ammunition and calibers, Those are kind of the best resources I can recommend. There's tremendous numbers of books and websites and videos, but I would tell you probably the best place that you're going to learn a lot uh, if you have specific questions would be our forum. Go into the firearms uh, board on our forum and just say, hey, I'm a new shooter. Give me, you know, and start asking questions. Start threads. Get involved because people that have actually done it will, will be able to help you move faster through your questions and figure out what's really important to you. Taking firearms training is a great thing to do. There's no, the book will never replace reality. Books are places to get theory. Reality is a place to gain practice. And good instruction is, is key. Um, it's great that you're starting out with a 22. You, there's so many bad habits you will not develop because you're starting with a 22. Um, sadly, right now, in many cases, it's harder to find 22 ammunition than 9mm or 38 special or 380. Um, you know, it used to be completely the other way around, but I, I'm really waiting for the day that 22 ammo becomes widely available again. And I would say don't be ridiculous about it. Don't go out and buy like 10 bricks at a time when it does because you'll just exasperate the problem. But I would tell everybody out there when 22 ammo does become readily available again, and it will, start stocking up a little at a time over time and stock up into, you know, the, the five to 10,000 round uh, stockpile minimum. It's so cheap. It's so storable. It's so easy to do, it's so reasonable to do, and when this happens again, and it will, you will still be able to practice and use that .22 for hunting and sporting and other purposes. So I think it's great that you started with that. I would recommend forums on firearms. If I was going to recommend a couple books uh, beyond the ballistic stuff just to get familiar with guns as a whole and what's available in different gun types, some of the best things I could recommend would be a book that came out a few years ago called Guns 101. Um, and I'm not going to put links to all these, so if you want to find them, you just need to Google them on Amazon. Okay, so the first one is called Guns 101, A Beginner's Guide to Buying and Owning Firearms, and it's pretty decent, and it's 
if you look at criticism of it, it's generally by people that already know a lot about guns. Um, but for people that don't, it's a great intro. I've already mentioned Cartridges of the World, and I don't think you need both of these books, but an alternative to that, which is more affordable, a little less uh, wide breadth of cartridges, but but uh, very, very good, and only about 13 bucks is the Shooter's Bible Guard Guide to Cartridges, uh, which give you a tremendous information, and if you don't ever want to reload, it's probably a better book than the Spear Horn or Hornady manuals uh, as far as getting cartridge information. I would still recommend the Lee manual for understanding the whole process, but the Spear manual and the Hornady manuals are both expensive, where the Shooter's Bible Guide to Cartridges is only about 13 bucks. so I'd recommend that to broaden your knowledge. A website I might recommend that seems not quite with fitting with what you're asking is called surplusrifle.com. And uh, the reason I would recommend that is it goes through all different types of military surplus rifles, stuff that's now available. Uh, some of it's very inexpensive. Some of it's quite expensive, depending on what it is. But it goes through all these different types of guns that have been used in the past by the military. Bolt actions, semi-automatics, handguns, revolvers, semi-auto handguns, etc. And the reason I'd recommend maybe to go through that is because you'll see all these different actions. There's all different types of articles on restoring and refinishing and how they function. And what you'll realize very, very quickly, once you become familiar with firearms, is that every firearm has basic common functions. And if you understand the common functions, most most firearms you, you could pick up have never seen the model before, and you know, okay, the slide won't move. There must be a slide release. If it's a, if it's a semi-auto handgun and there's a slide, there's probably a way that that slide can be taken off. There must be some way to do that, and you can figure it out. If it's a bolt-action gun, the bolt is going to work the same way every time. There's probably a button, or by pulling the trigger once the bolt is fully retracted and you know it's not loaded, there's probably a way that I can either push a button or pull the trigger and pull the bolt out to the rear. The safety's probably on a right-handed bolt-action going to be somewhere where the right thumb can manipulate it. There's going to be a magazine that's going to hold the ammunition. It's either going to be a box magazine underneath the bolt or a tubular magazine allowing. And you, you just start to realize once you have a basic understanding of four or five or ten different weapons that there's these, these commonalities repeat through them. There's a lever action, but yeah, it uses a lever to open and close, but you know, it's either going to be a box magazine or a tubular magazine. And I, that might not make sense to you as a new shooter, but as soon as you see it, it will. And, and, you know, there's going to be an older weapon may have a, not as much safety as a newer weapon. And what was the older safety like and what's the new safety like? Understanding surplus weapons is a great way to get a background in that. And it's, I'll tell you this. If you start taking something apart, cleaning it up, putting it back together, maybe even doing a little restoration project or something like that, you get a lot of confidence and you're not afraid to mess with it. And then you're willing to take apart that brand new 22, you know, Ruger semi-auto pistol or whatever you have and clean it the way you're supposed to because you're not afraid you won't be able to get it back together. Well, if you go out and buy like a $70 Mosin the Gaunt rifle and go to surplusrifle.com and do not a, a, a conversion to sporter, but just a restoration, completely get all the Cosmoline on it, clean off it, clean it up. You know, maybe get a little, a few of the pits and stuff out of the, out of the, uh, out of the stock. You know, degrease it, put it back together, learn how it works, get some surplus ammo, take it out and shoot it, get that experience of, of something like that. 
Um, it's, it seems kind of advanced, but it's really not. It's really not. It will do a lot to just get you into touch with the tactical sensation, the tactile, uh, not tactical, tactile sense, your own senses of the gun and understanding the gun is an extension of the body. And understanding that it's just a tool and every tool can be manipulated and changed. It can be taken care of or it can be abused. And, and all of these things together should start to, you know, make the firearms journey an exciting one of discovery. But please, in all of this, get professional training. Understand that there is no such thing as too much safety. Safety, 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 safety. The first thing you do when you pick up any weapon is make sure it's, it's clear. Make sure there's no ammunition in it. Don't touch the trigger. Open the action. Check it. Then do it again. Then do it one more time. Be absolutely certain that it's not loaded, period. Even if you just unloaded it, check it again before you do anything with it. I know people who have lost loved ones through accidents and firearms that were pretty experienced people with firearms that just got lazy with checking. Um, it can happen. It does happen. It's part of the risk of owning firearms. The thing is, it never needs to happen. If you follow the rules, then it won't happen. Period. It won't happen. I don't care if you saw Jamie Lee Curtis drop a Mac-10 down the stairs in an Arnold Schwarzenegger movie and the gun went off all the way down the stairs and accidentally killed all the people. It doesn't happen. Guns don't just go off. Guns don't just go off. Drop firearms don't just go off. If you do certain things to make them unsafe, like adjust the trigger down to ridiculous pressure levels, it can happen, but you know most of us don't do stupid shit like that. So enjoy it. Have fun with it. Discover it. Hopefully I've given you more than you asked for. And now you're like, oh, damn, where do I start? I would start I would start with the podcast that I gave you at the beginning on ballistics and reloading. And I would start with getting a copy of the Lee Manual. And I would, I would start there. And I think by the time you're done with that, you'll know where you want to go next. It'll give you uh, an incredible education on what firearms are, how they work, what pressures are, what calibers are, what all the numbers mean, what 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 things like, well, it's got a sectional density of .271. Do I care? Does it matter? And what does it mean? Uh, you'll know. If you listen to those podcasts, read the Lee Manual, you'll know. Uh, with that, I'm done today. I hope everybody enjoyed today's show. This is one of the more varied shows. Man, we talked about a ton of stuff today. We talked about You know, military surplus. We talked about military vehicles, civilian equivalents. We talked about backup power. Uh, we, we talked, we talked about teacup kids. We talked about field phones and communications. We talked about methanol. We talked about going off grid, uh, versus on grid and why a thousand bucks to be on grid is a good deal. Uh, we talked about permaculture. We talked, I mean, this was an awesome show and I want to thank everybody that called in. And if you've called in recently and your show, your, your call's not been on the air, I want to let you know that um, it's most likely there was something technically wrong with your call, like I couldn't hear you. I had quite a few calls today that were uh, uh, like that. And I, mean, I know if you call from a cell phone, there's no one on the other end to tell you you're not being heard well. Please listen to the recording at the beginning. If it sounds choppy, you're probably going to sound choppy. Call back. Look at your cell phone for uh, signal strength. And understand some questions just don't get on the air. I do the best I can with all of them. But if you like today's show and you like the show in general and you're not a member of my support brigade yet, consider joining. You'll get a lot of great uh, benefits if you become a member of the support brigade. And you'll support the show at 18.3 cents an episode. Threw that in there at the end because I didn't do it at the beginning of the day. 
And as I, cl I close today, I want to remind you guys of something I think is really important that we always keep our, our mindset on. And that is that what we're doing with preparedness and self-sufficiency and individual liberty and self-reliance is important to saving the belief that this country was founded on, that all men were created equal and endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. I don't care if you're a Christian, a Buddhist, a Methodist. Uh, I know Christian is a Methodist, but I don't care what your faith is, including if you're an atheist. I don't care if, like me, you're a deist. Um, those words are universal. Endowed by your creator. I don't care what you believe about your creator. Those words mean that by your very existence, there's certain rights that are inherent to you, that you have by the very nature that you're here. And over the history of the world, governments have been tyrannical and stripping those rights from people. It's why we had a need for a Bill of Rights, the first ten amendments to our Constitution, in the first place. It's why it was necessary. And that it is up to us, the people, to preserve those rights. And we cannot do that from a point of weakness It must be done from a point of strength. Strength and aggression are not synonymous with each other, folks. Strength is strength. Aggression is aggression. You can be weak and aggressive. You can be strong and aggressive. But aggression is an action. Strength is a sense of being. Strength is a fact. Strength is a position. And you will not be strong. And you will not be able to act in strength. You will not be able to act in courage. You will not be a good steward of liberty without being strong. And I'm not talking about how big of a barbell you can pick up. I'm talking about strong in your life where you know you can take care of your family, where you know you can take care of your community, where you know you can, where you know you can take care of your friends, where you know you're going to eat tomorrow even if the system fails around you, where you know you'll be able to provide for others if you have to, and where you know if someone tries to harm you or someone you love, you will be able to take some action to defend them. That is why we do these things. We do not do these things in fear. We do them from a sense of power and strength as peaceful warriors. And with that, this has been another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. It's in our food these days, you know it's on our TVs. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. You don't have to be another face in the crowd. Children just can't pay
nobody up there cares.